so I just have to say it's really my pleasure to uh, be able to have Dr. Ricardo Salvador here and to be able to introduce him. Um, we actually at first uh, invited uh, Dr. Salvador to join us in a symposium that was put on by us and the Board on Agriculture and Natural Resources on Disruptive Biotechnologies in Agriculture and Forestry, but COVID uh, destroyed that. Uh, so we're glad that uh, you can be, Ricardo, that you can be joining us here. And uh, one of the real reasons you know, to have Ricardo here is, is that he has such a diverse uh, experience with agriculture. Uh, and so his perspectives are, are really very interesting. Um, you know, he uh, is now the director and senior scientist for the Food and Environment a thing in the Union of Concerned Scientists. And some of you know the Union of Concerned Scientists, but uh, they have uh, been around for a long time, I think actually starting out during the Cold War in terms of nuclear uh, probably, you know, nuclear bombs and, and issues about that, but then had a very uh, strong involvement in the early discussions on genetically engineered crops. And um, Salvador has been, uh, has been there since 2012. Uh, but I, I, his, his background, I just a little bit, you know, he has family roots in, in two different kinds of agricultural systems, and he may get to talking about uh, some of that. But um, he uh, developed and went on to get a uh, BS in agriculture at New Mexico State University, and then a master's and a PhD at Iowa State University, and that was in crop production and, and crop physiology. And uh, as, as we heard a, a little bit just in the chit chat before the meeting, he was very involved in really the details of uh, plant physiology and allocation of nutrients and, and, and such. And we were hoping to have him there to talk about some of these ideas about how you're going to improve the physiology of crops and what can and can't be done. So he has a very quantitative uh, background in that way. And after he got his PhD, uh, Iowa State hired him. And I guess he was there uh, from 1988 till 2006. Um, and not only did he do crop physiology there, he served as the chair of the graduate program in sustainable agriculture. I think it's one of the first in that way. And uh, also chaired the university honors program and was the director of global agricultural science and policy institute. Um, and from there, he went on to be the pro a program officer at the Kellogg Foundation. And there, he, I know he had involvement with NC State with our environmental systems uh, program and actually, I think he pretty much helped us uh, quite a bit in in that regard. Um, so um, I've known him just briefly in terms of our serving on the board of Agriculture and Natural Resources for the National Academy of Sciences. Before I hand this over uh, to um, Ricardo, I, I just want to mention that he recently had an article in the New York Times, I guess it was, uh, along with Mark Bittman. And this was really uh, very interesting and, and provocative. Mark Bickman is, you know, a chef and a food critic. And they point out that two thirds of USDA's $150 billion budget goes to programs addressing nutrition and food insecurity. You know, they're the people who do the food stamp programs and all sorts of other things. And basically he said, given that, 
um, basically said it's it's time to change the name. Goodbye USDA. Hello Department of Food and Well Being was the title of their uh, project, and he, they say it's time uh, the Secretary of Agriculture leverages the department's impact for more than just the benefit of agribusiness. The article points out that right from its inception, USDA has favored wealthier white farmers and built universities like our own on land of indigenous people. So I think it's it's worth <laughs> giving some thought to this issue of a department in food and well-being, what that would be. But I just want to bring that one thing up, but I'm sure Ricardo will uh, give us a lot more to think about this uh, afternoon. So Ricardo, it's all yours. Thank you very much, Fred, for that very generous introduction. And I appreciate the invitation to join all of you. Uh, as Fred mentioned, the original premise for speaking to this group was different, and so uh, I have a little bit more latitude in terms of the topic. And as you see, I want to talk to you all about all of the reasons why the future of agriculture cannot be like the past of agriculture. And this is going to take a very broad sweep. Um, a lot of us academics can sometimes joke that whenever we answer questions, we like to begin all the way back at the Big Bang. And I hope you're not frightened, but I actually am gonna begin all the way back at the Big Bang. Uh, but before I do that, let me just tell you that uh, I've been a big admirer of Fred's work since long before we actually knew each other. I actually have to tell you as well that one of the reasons why I joined the Board on Agriculture and Natural Resources was to get the opportunity to finally work with Fred. And as soon as I joined, he promptly resigned. And so <laughs> this is a second best in terms of an opportunity to join up with Fred, at least in some of your endeavors. Well, um, I'm going to address broadly the general question of sustainability or the viability of our current direction in agriculture in order to explain why I think we need to dramatically transform our thinking and therefore our actions. And so as I threatened, let me uh, begin by just doing a timeline that will give perspective to this question of sustainability. So um, as far as our science can tell us, the age of the universe is about 13.9 billion years. And uh, you will all know that it, in the context of the forming universe, basically the transformation of energy, the accretion of matter, uh, the creation of solar systems and galaxies belongs to the latter part of the history of the universe. And so the age of our galaxy, the age of our planet uh, is much briefer. So our best estimates are that the age of the planet are around four and a half billion years uh, before the present. And it took a while for life to develop on the planet. So again, our best estimates are that that had occurred by around three and a half billion years before present. And it took a while for photosynthetic organisms to develop. And we believe that that had already occurred by 1.2 billion years before the present. Uh, multicellular heterotrophic organisms, animals, presented as far as we can tell from the archeological uh, record to about 0.7 billion years ago. Land plants, about 0.45 billion years before the present. And from that, let us jump to our species, Homo sapiens. We just don't even belong on that scale of billions of years before present, as you know. Uh, 
Anthropologists tell us that as our current species, we've been around for about 200,000 years. So two times 10 to the minus four billion years before the present. And we're living in a particular area where we're particularly proud of ourselves. We call it modernity. We call it the high technology era. And there's many ways that we could peg that, but I'll choose to peg it to the beginning of the fossil fuel era, which is basically the period of time from which we were able to live beyond our energetic means, as the name itself tells us. We're mining prior photosynthetic energy in order to drive today's technology. And that's only about 162 years of age, and I'm dating that by the uh, operation of the Drake well in the state of Pennsylvania. So, you know, 1.6 times 10 to the minus 7 billion years before present would be that era. Now, you'll, you'll see why that timeline is significant to the argument I want to lay out before you. And it's really the, the uh, argument uh, that's presented in the pre-read that I shared with all of you folks titled The Astrobiological Perspective. So with that broad sweep, what I want to describe to you very quickly is the answer to the question, are we alone in the universe? I promise you, even though this sounds very esoteric, that we'll wind down to agriculture and sustainability here pretty soon, but just bear with me. Um, you'll see why this question of whether we're alone in the universe is very pertinent to answering whether we are smart enough to continue to live on this planet for very much longer. The best estimate of a way to answer that question was developed by a, an astronomer who still lives. Uh, he did this work in the early 1960s. His name is Francis Drake. He developed an equation. It's really a concept um, uh, that is known as the Drake equation, and it has seven terms. And just follow the logic. The, the actual data, uh, the terms themselves, don't matter as much as the logic. But in order to determine whether it was reasonable to expect that there would be other civilizations like the one that had already presented on Earth by the 1960s when Francis Drake uh, was doing this thinking, he thought, well, there are at least seven terms that define the answer to that question or the, or the probabilities. And so these should all make sense to you, but follow the logic. The first one is the number of stars with planets, the rate of star creation in the universe. And then of those planets, the number of them that would be orbiting in what we call the Goldilocks zone, you know, where liquid water and the sort of life that we're familiar with would be possible. And then of those planets, the number of them that could actually develop life and then of those, the fraction that actually did develop life, just because conditions presented didn't necessarily imply that life could develop. And then of that fraction, the number that actually developed a highly technological civilization. Uh, of that fraction, the number that could develop a technology that could actually send signals out into space. And then of that fraction, the length of the window, the duration of the period of time during which a high technology civilization could be emitting such signals, because obviously that would have to intersect with our own similar window in order for us to be able to detect one another. So the Drake equation has seven terms. Uh, it's a linear multiplicative uh, equation, as you just detected. So if any one of those is zero, then we're alone in the universe. 
So if you follow the logic and if you think that there's a more than zero probability that um, that each one of those terms is is actually uh, unity or greater, then it's possible to come up with an estimate of how many other civilizations there are likely to be in the universe. So the estimates that have actually been run very wildly, as you might expect, because if you just listen to each one of the terms in the Drake equation, you picked up immediately that it's not possible to know the answer to those, that they're conjectural. And so for each one of those conjectures multiplied by six other terms that are also conjectural, you can get a broad spectrum of answers to the question. So they range from less than one, meaning we're the only place where this has happened, to more than 15 million in the known universe. So know that that is the range of speculation in terms of whether we're alone in the universe. And yet, if you had a chance to at least scan that paper on the astrobiological perspective, you know that in spite of searching since the 1960s through a number of different techniques across all of the different spectra that we're capable of, of doing, of uh, electromagnetic radiation incoming from space, that we have found no sign that there's anybody else generating anything like the kinds of signals that would be indicative of a highly technological information, sending out complicated, uh, sophisticated, information-laden uh, radiation. So then that leads to another question. Why are we so lonely? So the astrobiological perspective that's described in that paper that I shared with you has a very surprising answer to consider. So one answer to that question uh, might be that, um, in fact, there are all kinds of other uh, similar civilizations in the universe. And for some reason, our windows of viability have not intersected with one another. The surprising conjecture that's in that paper that I shared with you actually states that we must be laggards. Um, what it must be is that elsewhere, all of the factors that came together to enable sentient civilizations to develop a high technology did so very quickly. But here is one of the corollaries of developing any highly technological civilization. You essentially are working against entropy. Um, you essentially must invest energy in order to overcome entropy. And the more energy you invest, the more wasted energy or heat you generate. So a characteristic, all of you that are familiar with thermodynamics or at least at the, at the very raw way of understanding this um, of any high technology is that you cannot convert energy perfectly. There will always be wasted energy that we detect as heat energy. So when you stand next to a car engine, you immediately sense that thermal energy as the wasted energy that is not converted perfectly from the fossil fuel, which is being burned into the mechanical energy that is driving that car. And everything that we do in a highly technological civilization that is fighting against entropy, so that means everything that we're building is going to generate a fraction of wasted energy or thermal heat. And so we're in the throes, we realize this right now. Our species realizes even though uh, there is a circuit in our thinking that goes something like this, 
that fact is very inconvenient, therefore it can't possibly be true. We're in that phase of realizing that something must change if we hope not to boil ourselves as a product of being a highly technological civilization that's building all of our technology by burning energy in order to fight against entropy, in order to overcome uh, the decay that is the basically the, the doom of the universe. So having reviewed that, this is one of the reasons why in that paper you get that argument that we must be laggards. Everybody else went through that cycle of figuring this out and creating very advanced technological civilizations and essentially boiling themselves to death. And we're really slow. Uh, this is happening way after everyone else went through that, and that's why we can't detect anybody else in the universe. Now, it's a totally different topic to actually get into the argument of how likely that is, but I'm just raising it to both tickle your brain and also open up our thinking to the possibility that there actually, actually is an existential quiz for humanity. Uh, the quiz is, can we figure out what is happening to us? And most importantly, can we act as a species to change the behavior that is currently elevating global temperatures to points where we know that if this behavior is not curbed, within 100 years, the way that we're currently living will not be viable. So it's an interesting question because as a globe, we've not shown that we've been able to do anything in a unified fashion. As a matter of fact, as recent history just in this nation shows, as a nation, we've not shown that we can do much as a unified group of people or community. Um, we fight over resources. We are very clever when it comes up, uh, when it comes to uh, dreaming up all the ideologies and the rationales that justify why we have preferential claim to resources. Uh, you can imagine, you know, a few hundred thousand years ago when we first showed up, contesting hunting grounds. You know that the root of the word rival is essentially a river one of the original geographical boundaries by which we marked our territories. We've been fighting for river valleys. We've been fighting for river deltas. We've been fighting for continents. We're now beginning to infect the moon, hoping to infect the uh, Martian planet with that same sort of behavior, but still in a competitive fashion, not thinking as a community, a planetary community that somehow needs to survive. That means that certain values about our consumptive society need to be examined and changed. And as you now realize, agriculture is just but one part of that consumptive approach to the planet, that extractive approach that depends on degrading soil, degrading water, degrading fossil fuel, and warming up the atmosphere. So it's a real question whether we'll be able to complete that learning cycle that I started to mention a few moments ago Will we realize what is happening what is happening to us, overcome the denialism, and then get to the stage of doing something about it as a planet? Because all of us will need to take part in both that realization and in the change of culture that will be required in order to survive on the planet. So a uh, very recent astrophysicist that all of you will know, Stephen Hawking, actually uh, had thought deeply about this. Um, Stephen Hawking recently passed away, but in one of his very last public uh, speaking engagements, a 2008 TED Talk, he had this answer to the question of whether we would be smart enough to be able to survive on the planet. In brief, he didn't think we would. He, he think we needed an escape strategy. And this is what he said. He said, our only chance of long-term survival is not to remain lurking on planet Earth, but to spread out into space. 
The answers to these big questions show that we have made remarkable progress in the last hundred years. But if we want to continue beyond the next hundred years, our future is in space. That is why I'm in favor of manned, or should I say, personed spaceflight. So remember, this was stated in 2008 uh, by Stephen Hawking. Now, since then, uh, he mentioned this at a time when the uh, US space program had been abandoned and plans to go beyond the, the moon were essentially not something being considered uh, realistically. Now, as you know, there has been a mission to Mars that has been uh, revived, missions to the moon that have been revived. And now it isn't just the United States and the so and, and Russia that are uh, pursuing that. Now it's many other countries. Uh, Japan, uh, China are capable of uh, sending uh, vehicles to uh, our near neighbors. But the interesting thing now is that the planet's richest folks are also entering into this exploration. And they have stated that it is because of logic very similar to Stephen Hawking's. If you think about this escape clause, if leaving the planet is the only way that we're gonna survive, there's all kinds of obvious questions. Well, who is gonna leave the planet? And who gets to decide that? And if we're not smart enough to avoid making a mess on planet Earth, how are we actually gonna make it on either the moon or Mars, our nearest neighbors, which we would have to terraform or else expend much more energy uh, than we expend on Earth, where essentially we have all kinds of life systems that have co-evolved with us. You know, we're essentially a byproduct of the biophysical evolution of planet Earth. We're going to have to recreate all of that artificially someplace else. If we haven't been smart enough to deal with all of the free services that the Earth provides, just who is going to be smart enough to do this on a terraform satellite or other planet. So those are very real questions to contend with. Uh, they argue for actually trying to figure it out here on Earth. But in the meantime, Elon Musk is working on SpaceX, as you well know. Jeff Bezos is working on Blue Origin. And Richard Branson has been working on Virgin Galactic. He was the one to actually, just a few weeks ago, be able to establish that he, he can also enter into this game. So you can pretty much guess for each of those three individuals how they would answer the question, who is going to leave the planet and who is going to decide that? So this is the situation that we have. Um, I'm going to quote to you um, a, a sociobiologist from Harvard that all of you, uh, I'm sure students of biology are familiar with, E.O. Wilson, who describes the quandary of humanity in this very pithy way. He says, the real problem of humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions. So for instance, denialism of a threat and the capability to only think in terms of short-term escape from threats. So he says, the real problem of humanity is we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. So in agriculture, we have exactly the same situation. And uh, to explain that to you, I wanna focus on that last term that E.O. Wilson used, technology. Um, and uh, if, if you've born, uh, with me as I begged you this far, this is where we can get into what most of us are doing day in and day out, you know, burrowed deeply into the technologies that we're developing in university settings. Uh, technology is essentially applied knowledge and it is also embodied technology. The applied knowledge aspect means that there is a, a factual understanding of the way that the planet works, that physics works, that we're actually using 
for our own purposes. But the embodied aspect of technology has to do with the fact that we often package it in ways that make it possible for us not to have to understand the basis, the scientific basis of the technology. We're just going to use it. So, for instance, the majority of us right now are communicating on devices that we essentially just see as the tools that we use to write, to read, to transfer information, to look at cute cat videos, to communicate with grandma. We don't need to know about the way that the semiconductors inside these contraptions actually work or how miniaturization is involved in etching those semiconductors or the binary logic that actually codes the way that information is transferred. We don't need to understand the way that the LEDs are turning in on and off on the screen. It's all embodied knowledge. And it's in a package that means that we don't need to understand it, but it's applied knowledge. So when folks about 100 years ago began to study the science that eventually led to the application that all of us are benefiting from right now, they were answering very specific questions. What was the nature of light? Was it quantize? Was it waveform? And so on. And their answers to those questions led to the knowledge that we are now applying in the technology that I've just described to you. What is the equivalent in agriculture? In agriculture, we think that we're dealing with plants and animals and that we're finding clever ways to make them as efficient as possible. And I would like to give you a different perspective of what we're doing in agriculture. And uh, the briefest way of doing that is to say that we're just moving stuff around. Um, in essence, we learned to perform agriculture just very recently. If you go back to that broad sweep of the timeline of the universe and where we fit in onto it, not only do we not belong on that spectrum of time, you know, we're just a little speck at the very tail end of, of the physical existence of the universe. This agricultural behavior is something of just the last 10,000 years. It doesn't even register. We're just beginning to learn what it is and how it works. And we're just like little children toying around with it, not fully realizing what we're doing, particularly when we claim these broad uh, 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 achievements uh, in that we call efficiency. So let me explain that, that, that bold claim. Uh, when we first learned to do agriculture, essentially nature was doing all of the work. River deltas were essentially concentrating nutrients, organic matter and water in a place that then made that area more fertile for plants. Our predecessors noticed that and took advantage of that. Same sort of phenomenon replicated on uh, Piedmonts, on alluvial fans, where essentially erosion from a broad hydrogeographical area concentrated in rich soil, nutrients, organic matter, and water in an area where, again, plants would perform better. We noticed that we took advantage of that. Now we essentially just replicate the mechanics of what river deltas and alluvial fans used to do, even though those two are still important settings for agriculture around the planet. Now what we do is use that fossil energy that I mentioned earlier. Now we've identified those places that are the best staging areas for agriculture at very large scale around the planet. There's seven of them. We've identified where they are. And what we're doing is we're moving vast amounts of nutrients. In the case where water is insufficient, we're moving water to those staging areas. Um, we're embodying the knowledge that we have about the way that plants and animals work in order to biologically subsidize the productivity of those areas by increasing the nutrient density that's flowing through those areas. Um, 
And we're doing nothing of the kind of increasing the efficiency of those places. This is just brute force subsidizing the nutrient density that's going through those areas, as is well attested by the fact that correlated with each one of those seven major basins of food production, we have massive historical increases in geological hypoxia. And so there's massive waste. Those are just indicators of all of the waste, the effluent of this mismanagement of the massive nutrient flux for each one of these major agricultural basins. So we're being very wasteful, but of course, as long as we have the wealth and we have the ability to say that as you know, Richard Branson and as Jeff Bezos uh, and as Elon Musk are doing, we have the resources to make decisions opportunistically on our own behalf, no matter who is damaged, uh, no matter how long that behavior is viable, we will continue to do that. And so again, I'll remind you of uh, E.O. Wilson's observation, paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, but godlike technology. So that's our quandary. That's the existential quiz that we're all facing. The uh, last thing I want to launch at you, given that we're all, I think in this crowd, we're enriched in biotechnologists, but we're all broadly in the field of agriculture, is that whilst we may think in the short term about the technical problems that we believe we're contributing to solve, that we should have the presence of mind to understand the big picture, to understand what technology is, to understand what ends are actually being served by that technology, to understand who is being benefited, who is being harmed, and then to ask ourselves honestly, what role do I want to play in that drama? So uh, Fred, uh, Don advised me that I should leave enough time that we could get into group discussion. So uh, I could keep on going, but maybe that's a good place to stop and see whether that stimulates any discussion. Yeah. Yeah, we'll leave uh, the chat open if anyone would like to ask a question on the chat or if anyone would like to um, verbally ask a question, just raise your hand and I will unmute you. Joseph? I see a raised hand. If you can introduce yourself and ask your question. My name is Joseph Gapo. Um, I'm pursuing an MALS, um, a master's in liberal arts. Um, Ricardo, very insightful conversations there. Um, I'm, I'm interested in what you think about. So, so let's say we start being laggards and one way or the other in the course of our continuous search we discover that maybe there is life elsewhere uh, that's so viable that we could also probably be able to live on um, other continents, you know, other planets than where we live now. Do you envisage that may cause us to be more careful about the environment that we live in on planet Earth, or that may even worsen how we handle planet Earth, because then we think there will be a place for us to go eventually if we destroy planet Earth. What do you think of that? Yeah, the, uh, you know, so the, the questions that you're asking are have been uh, rich sources of plot lines for all kinds of science fiction. 
you know, as anybody that's watched the Star Trek or read, you know, science fiction uh, can tell you. So that that is a, an interesting question. There are um, there are lots of possibilities uh, there. You know, is, would it be the case that if we were able to uh, ever encounter a highly sophisticated technological civilization? they would have followed a vector that meant that they were wiser about how they survived uh, in their uh, planet of origin and that we could learn from them. Uh, or would it be the case that they're essentially the, the Richard Branson's and Elon Musk's of their planets and that they're you know space pirates and they're out basically looking for where they're going to find their next titanium-rich planet that they're going to mine in order to continue to you know feed their industries and enrich themselves. Um, we could be that sort of scourge for another, you know, advanced civilization. You know, if we continue to behave the way that we are right now, we might perceive that we need to defend ourselves against folks that are pacifists. So, you know, there's all kinds of permutations to that that possibility. But I, I, um, while all of that is very important to think about and actually to be prepared for. I think the urgency for me is actually the one that I stated a couple of times, which is actually to realize this is an existential issue. This is something that is not just science fiction. This is actually something that humanity as a species, one species, you know, 40, 50,000 years ago, there were more than one species of homo on the planet, but we're the only ones that survived. So acting as one species, one race on the planet, can we act together in the collective interest in order to assure our mutual survival? That to me is the existential quiz. And we're, we're showing a lot of small-mindedness, a lot of short-range thinking, uh, a lot of tribalism in terms of how we actually approach that. It's not looking hopeful in terms of the answer to that question. Just speaking for ourselves. Thank you, Ricardo. We have Ramon's hand that was up and then I'll read Nora Hans and Jason Delborn's question in the chat. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Salvador. I have a couple of comments and in regards to what you talked about. One is the other day I was listening to the radio, David Attenborough, and he said something I always kind of, uh, he said it very nicely that part of the problem that we have is that we still live in a society that thinks that growth is uh, is a desirable outcome. So we're not really looking for homeostasis, right? You said that uh, we, we need to realize that if you expect infinite growth, either you're a madman or you're an economist. So I really like the way he put it. Um, and, and that brings me to the other point that goes back to agriculture and technology. When I was probably like 14, my dad uh, made me read a book called Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher. Uh, and of course, at 14, you, you really don't get it. But uh, over time, that has become a, a very important uh, notion for me that perhaps in agriculture, uh, we just went to be the technology. We just kept this idea that the efficiency is based on larger technology. And what we forgot about, as you were saying, about the efficiency of the system, not only energetically, but probably ecologically, we should be shooting for uh, not necessarily old technology, it could be modern technology, but at a scale that is more, um, that fits better 
the challenges that we're doing and that is going to work for the majority of the people and the majority of the ecosystems, right, or, or organisms. I just wanted to, to, to ask your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of E.F. Schumacher's and, and the, the subtitle of that book that you mentioned, Small is Beautiful, actually is the whole book uh, itself. You, I recommend reading the book, but if you, you know, don't read the book, just the subtitle itself is it. And the subtitle is Economics as if People Mattered. Uh, you know, it's basically following on the notion that economics is here to serve people. People, people are not here to serve economics. And uh, there's been a whole school of economics that has actually developed uh, from that. Uh, if you're interested, you can actually search online. I wouldn't say that it's a dominant school of economics, not at all, but it's called steady state economics. And uh, Herman Daly is one of the prominent economists that's a major exponent of that mode of thinking. Uh, and of course, since economics is basically a way of tracking the wealth that we generate and the decisions that lead to uh, how we generate the wealth, it ultimately does translate into the ways in which we deal with the planet. As, as you know, at the risk of repeating myself, we only understand how to extract. We're only acting on the knowledge of how to extract and how to move things around on the planet. You know, minerals from one part of the planet to the other, petroleum from one part of the planet to the other, water from one part of the planet to the other, and so on. But the realization that uh, we now know how planetary geophysical cycles work and that while there can never be a uh, perfect steady state when it comes to biology, I mean, it's an open system. We depend on incoming solar energy in order to drive the whole thing. And our entire viability is tied to the existence of, of our star. But still, you know, that's a lifespan of billions of years still uh, ahead of us if we can survive the existential crisis that we're in right now, which is mostly of our own making. You know, there, there's nothing that the star is doing in order to further warm up the planet. We have accelerated that in the last 100 years. Um, and so we know enough now about the way the planet works that we can make different decisions about how we generate our energy, how we expend the energy, and what projects are actually worthwhile in terms of trying to resist entropy. Um, you know, I could say a whole lot more about that, but I mostly just want to echo your, your enthusiasm for the fact that there's a lot of juice to be squeezed from the notion of a more steady state kind of agricultural uh, system than the one that is just a completely uh, linear open system at the moment and one where we don't give a whole lot of thought to closing cycles. Thank you, Ricardo. We have a number of questions here in the chat box. So I'm gonna just, I'm gonna read the first one for you. Uh, from Nora Han from Anthropology. Would love to hear Ricardo's own perspectives on the questions he just posed. What does he think are the guidelines for decision-making at both professional and institutional levels? Yeah. Um, well, you know, this is going to sound uh, extremely corny, but it, but I'll, I'll begin with the, the rule that basically all of our uh, moral codes on the planets have converged on. Some, some version of let's treat each other the way that we would like to be treated ourselves. Um, that does away with the whole competitive approach that we've generated to lay a claim to particular uh, parts of the planet or to particular sources of wealth on the planet uh, that we then appropriate to ourselves. 
uh, you know, so I, I mentioned earlier on, without giving you examples, that we've been very good at coming up with those rationales, and we still act on them. You know, we have the rationale of being the chosen people. You know, God picked us. We're the ones that deserve to be on this plot of land. Um, you know, with the obvious problem being that everybody comes up with that story, and so you know, then that leads to conflict. Uh, or, you know, the one that we're all dealing with, the, the one where we're particularly primitive uh, still uh, at the moment, is the notion that we are different kinds of human beings on the planet, that we're on some sort of hierarchy of superiority that has to do with our genes or our supposed race. So that racism that is manifest to this day in this society, as everyone vividly knows, is one of the things that we need to overcome by realizing that we all have a common interest. So I, I would say that a rule to apply uh, both at the institutional level and personally is always how you fit into the general common interest. Um, in many traditional societies, often that is a guide, even if it is just a, um, a rarefied, uh, you know, a theoretical or an aspirational guide. That would be much better than a society that just openly embraces, quote, rugged individualism and the spirit of competitiveness and against all evidence argues that, that competition is better for everyone. Um, you know, all the evidence actually shows the opposite, you know, the breakdown not only in market rules, but breakdown in, in actual society and breakdown in the way that the planet works. So clearly, you know, if you examine evidence, those mythologies aren't working and we actually just need to call it, you know, like good scientists. We actually need to say the evidence does not support that claim. Thank you, Jason Delborn from our Forest and Environmental Resources has, are we more likely to change our Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, or do we have to pursue change with those realities as fixed? Yeah, that's interesting. This is more a coffee shop conversation rather than something that I can answer for you. Um, you know, I have often wondered whether that Paleolithic emotion thing is something that, wouldn't be something that we could address with effective uh, education. Uh, I mean, there are, there are aspects during our education that we attempt to regulate about our base behaviors. Uh, you know, if there weren't base behaviors, instincts and drives that we all have all the time towards self-gratification that we didn't, that we, uh, didn't curb, um, I think I had a couple of double negatives in there, but you know, if we didn't curb some of our basest uh, instincts, then society as we know it would actually be more dysfunctional than it actually is. So maybe actually adding to our, uh, our list of the base instincts that we have, that we need to control those paleolithic emotions being uh, self-interest, short-term thinking, um, and uh, the, the assumption that we need to compete with other people rather than cooperate them as our default uh, mode. Those could be things that could be very proper goals of, of basic acculturation and, and education. Uh, the medieval institution thing, um, you know, don't be insulted since most of you are sitting at a, at a medieval institution uh, right now, or at least virtually. But I, I think the pandemic, if anything, is actually questioning some of the basic premises of these. I mean, literally, this is not a metaphor. You know, the, the medieval model of the university that we've just, you know, sort of tumbled with all the way to the 21st century. A lot of the basic premises of how those should be organized and function are being questioned by what we're learning during the pandemic. Concretely, the business model is being uh, questioned. So maybe that will change uh, as well. The, the 
technology uh, aspect of this, I think if we deal with item number one, our paleolithic emotions, then that will more or less deal with the technology because the technologies that we have basically reflect what we want to do with the knowledge that we have. So if we actually want to utilize our technology for the common good, for the collective interest, then I believe that you know the technology will follow. So the technology itself is kind of an emergent uh, issue. I think it's item number one that we really need to confront. Okay, and I am unmuting. Uh, Zach Brown had a question for you. Yeah. Um, hey, I'm on an exercise bike, so forgive me for. <laughs> hey, good for um, you. So, <laughs> um, so I'm an economist, actually, and uh, so you know, on my bike for maximum efficiency here. But um, <laughs> so I've come a long way since uh, small is beautiful, and I will, I'll save that any you know, more commentary about that long journey I think I've gone on. But um, a question I actually had was not about economics, but about you know, biology and, um, you know, I, I rubbed elbows with folks in grad school who were working on like uh, cooperation in bacterial colonies and like biofilms and, you know, ways that a bacteria can switch from one state that's essentially self-interested to a collective, to some kind of collective behavior uh, that's be better for the colony. And I just wondered, you know, since this is a pretty high level conversation, like what analogs or lessons we could draw from, um, you know, that kind of behavior where there's where the equilibria are switching from like a more self-interested individualistic behavior um, from, you know, for organisms to one where there's like more cooperative uh, outcomes for the population. And I know there's a whole, you know, heated debate in biology from what I understand about um, evolution of like communities or whatever. Um, but I don't know, just kind of a general open-ended question, if you have any thoughts on if we can draw any lessons from other organisms about how they've you know, managed to transcend that individualistic. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you that this is fairly high level. Let, let me see if I can uh, deal with it briefly. Uh, this is going to be very mangled because of, of the complexity of, of layers of organization uh, that, that we're going to have to just synthesize here. So I'll acknowledge it at the outset. I think the problem that you raise uh, is basically a problem of teleology. Uh, you know, framing it in terms of what can we learn of other examples of cooperative behavior is kind of a false premise because we are the only species we, as far as we know, with self-awareness and the capacity to make conscious decisions about actions that will take, directions that will approach. In full knowledge of the sorts of things that I stated to you, which obviously are not a body of knowledge or perspectives that I could possibly have generated on my own during my own lifetime, but actually a summary filtered by you know critical thinking and review of basically all of human knowledge to the present. You know, I'm able to lay out a claim, a set of claims like the ones that I've uh, laid out for you. But everything that has occurred prior to us has occurred uh, under circumstances that as a good biologist, I will tell you, had no directionality, no purpose. Uh, basically, evolution operating uh, in a way in which evolving organisms adapted to the environments as the environments themselves are constantly in churn. And so the types of organisms that are now on the planet proved to be the ones best adapted to the kinds of ecological niches that the planet has generated. And this is actually a good time to go back to the um, 
to that timeline that I laid out at the very beginning. I just very cavalierly mentioned the appearance of single-celled uh, organisms and multicellular organisms. But in between that, there was a lot that happened. You know, films or mats of single-celled organisms. Um, and essentially the aggregation of different films in different niches acquiring different specializations, just to give you an example, in some cases deriving energy uh, from uh, essentially uh, splitting, uh, using solar energy, the photosynthetic process, uh, splitting water in order to acquire free electrons and then doing biosynthesis on the basis of that. Well, that happens several times in evolution and it turned out that carbon was not the essential uh, uh, backbone in all cases. Um, it just turns out that through this process, the ecosystem of organisms that we have right now develop a mutualism that we now talk about as if it were the anatomy of higher level organisms without recognizing the rootedness in the evolution and specialization of the tissues that now we call our liver or our kidney or our intestines, which each perform very specific tasks, but now adapted within a single organism in the same way that within a plant cell, you have the vestiges of um, single-celled organism like a mitochondrion, which is essentially driving our energy metabolism, or the vestiges of a blue-green bacterium in you know, the chloroplast that again is doing a very specific thing in terms of capturing solar energy and converting it into chemical energy. So the, the, the relation to your question is that the history of our, our evolution is basically the adaptation through higher and higher levels of complexity of these mutually beneficial sets of tissues, organs, you know, into higher functioning kinds of organisms up to the level where we are, where we require consciousness and what we use it to do is to inflict great cruelty on each other and to watch cat videos on our most highly sophisticated technology. So I, I think that what it will take is actually that higher level thinking that you've just described applied to ourselves and with the existential filter making it a very real challenge to us, which is part of what I'm trying to do here, you know, reminding ourselves this is not just stickle our brain. This is not just the science fiction scenario. This is the scenario of humanity. Are we going to be smart enough, clever enough, and socially sophisticated enough to actually change our behavior by realizing the situation that we're in? So um, you triggered all of that. I'm not sure that it addresses your, your question, uh, but that's what you bring to mind. Okay, thank you. We have about nine more minutes left and I see about six more questions. So I'm gonna try my best to get to all of them. The next one comes from Adam Kokodovich. He says, do you see biotechnology, gene editing, et cetera, as a continuation of the extractive approach to agriculture, even if they lead to a reduction of energy inputs compared to current practices? How do you define the extractive approach to agriculture with respect to biotechnology? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of traps in there. Uh, so uh, let me just tell you directly, uh, I, I am as geeky as any one of you about biotechnology. It was one of my first loves, one of the first things that actually drove me uh, to study the, the field that I was in, which is basically physiology. 
Uh, when I got into this, it was the era of uh, James Watson's Double Helix when he wrote that book. Uh, you know, it was, it seems now like eons ago and, you know, very different space technologically in terms of our capabilities to sequence, to understand the way that the genome is regulated and so on compared to what we have right now. Uh, but it, it's what drove me into this field. And um, as anyone who's followed the development of the vaccines against the coronavirus knows, uh, if you need a better example of how our understanding of biology is going to benefit humanity and has great potential to do so, you have no better object lesson than the accelerated development of those vaccines based on biotechnological insight. So the knowledge itself is something that we need to continue to pursue. It's basically understanding what the code is for our own being, for our own organism. There's all kinds of cruelty that, that humanity has had to endure because of random errors in our genome. Uh, if we can do things to alleviate that suffering and cruelty by understanding how to repair those errors, uh, I can see nothing but the good in terms of the knowledge of how to do how to do that. Now, the traps that I'm referring to are that obviously it's extremely expensive to perform the research and generate the knowledge that I've just described. How do we cover those expenses? At the moment, as you know, the research has been driven largely out of the public sector and straight into the arms of the waiting private sector. And there, my song changes tremendously. I have huge criticism of the business models uh, within the private sector that essentially appropriate biotechnological knowledge and turn it into what I mentioned earlier, the applied knowledge and particularly the embodied knowledge that you can use without having to understand how it works. Um, and I particularly have a critique about the way in which it's been very convenient that all of the basic uh, research oftentimes is publicly funded and then is actually leveraged into private profit once it enters into uh, the private sector. So it's sort of like the public sector is, uses the high risk R&D space and then when it's time to make a profit out of it, which then narrows down who is likely to benefit from it, then all of a sudden that's a private sector concern. Again, that's something around which broad level awareness and then the appropriate decision-making uh, could apply. So um, I know that only addresses part of what you asked, but those are, some of the traps that at least I could uh, detect in there. Great, thank you. And I'm gonna go straight to Alan Franz Luber. Uh, you touched on an important idea at the end about ethics in choices we make. Some technologies simply perpetuate the status quo so that fairness continues to divide us as cultures. Should we, should we not have mandatory in agriculture curricula courses on ethics in, in decision-making? Uh, yes, I think this would be helpful, although uh, you're going to have to forgive me for the following as well. I, I actually think that by the time we get to university, uh, a lot of our ethics and moral code have already been hard-coded. That it's a part of our total socialization and acculturation, what values we acquire. And they're reflections of our, of our grander society. So I, I, yes, I think that what you're talking about would be very important, particularly when we acquire the capability for self-critique, self-reflection. I think there's still you know, opportunity for redemption when people intellectually can overcome you know, what their social programming has coded into them. Uh, but I think that this is really something that goes, uh, you know, all the way throughout the family, you know, early education, all social institutions, uh, they all play a role in defining how we think about the universe, our, our place in society and so on. So it wouldn't be something that I think could be totally addressed or totally remedied by a university course in ethics. 
Okay, great. And so I have another question from Katie Barnhill-Dilling, and then there's an add-on question from Nora Han to that. So I'll read both of those, and I think that will be our last question that we have time for. It says, I appreciate the high-level thinking, but really struggle with human nature versus humans that have colonized via capitalism. There's even critique of ecological economics as co-opted from indigenous thinking. How might we rethink existing power to structures to rethink what we mean by humans can exist with within laws of ecologies or thermodynamics. And then the uh, add-on here is would like to connect to Katie's comment that the individualism discussed here seems to be a mark of capitalism as it developed out of European feudalism and it's unaccountable elites, elites, sorry. The question then would be how to make Bezos, Musk and other individualists accountable to the larger group. So I think we'll have to end with those two and if you infer your comment. Yeah, well, we're, we're in danger just having to end with that because I, I don't think there's a way I can uh, address those in two minutes. Uh, let me just uh, agree with a lot of the observations uh, in that question. You know, obviously one, uh, a big downer for us to end on here would be to say we, we will never be able to overcome those paleolithic emotions. Uh, and essentially, will only encounter the ultimate answer to this question when we are forced to deal with who is going to survive, what small fraction is going to survive and how are they going to pull that off. That's actually when we'll acknowledge the existential uh, threat to all of us. So what I'm stepping back and addressing what you're asking a question about is, are we capable of pushing on the brakes before we get to the end of the precipice because we can clearly see what's in our windshield? And, um, you know, there have been utopian drives to address the, these kinds of questions, uh, you know, uh, new age social movements and so on. And I think in all of them, what has been lacking is what in a very uh, crass way we could call proof of concept. I think the moment that all of us see something that works better than what we have right now, that that will give the ultimate credibility. And so each one of the challenges that I've marched through here, whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in the way that we generate energy, whether it's in the way that we prevent diseases or treat diseases, deal with hunger and so on. Each one of those is an opportunity to demonstrate that there's a better way of doing those sorts of things and therefore a different way of constructing society. If each one of us in our own little corner does that bit, then hopefully we can contribute in the same way that without any design, livers evolved, you know, and intestines evolved and so on, and come up with a completely different kind of society. Um, and I'm sorry to, to uh, mangle that and, and leave that at such an unsatisfactory state, but with the time given, that's the best I can do. Great. I just want to take this time to thank you, Dr. Ricardo Salvador, for coming to our colloquium today. And there are, I, I welcome you to look on the chat. There are a number of more comments and questions um, for you. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much for providing the space. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next Tuesday at 12 o'clock.